If you have Bibles, turn to Psalm 96 as we are looking and continuing in our Advent and leading up to Christmas series. Uh, if you remember, I reminded us that Advent is essentially about two words, remembrance and anticipation, looking back and looking forward. It's the coming of Jesus as we look forward into the world, essentially, to put everything right. We anticipate that. The Lord Almighty reigns. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would open our hearts and our minds to understand the wondrous things written of you in your word. We ask that your spirit would be our teacher and point us to Christ and show us his beauty, that we would, above all things, get you. As Andrew prayed earlier, as the deer pants for streams of water, I pray that our souls would pant after you, O Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 96, hear the reading of the word of the Lord. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory to his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him, all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established, it shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Friends, this is the very word of the Lord. One of my favorite things about the holidays, about Christmas, are the traditions we have. Every family has traditions, and we have ours. One of ours, you may laugh at me, you don't have to join with me, this is just something Evie and I enjoy to do. We come to the Christmas Eve service, we'll have it in a couple weeks, 7 o'clock, we'll do the great lessons and carols, we go home, we sit down on the sofa, and we turn on a Christmas story. Anybody ever see a Christmas story? I love that particular movie. You're going to shoot your eye out with that BB gun. I laugh, it can get me through the whole next year. I love that movie. Every Christmas Eve, we do that. Sometime in the Christmas season, we'll watch It's a Wonderful Life. That's for the sappy, sentimental side that I am. Then Christmas Eve, we'll watch a Christmas story. The point is, stories and traditions do something for us. They help us having your tradition, having your rhythms, having your stories helps to make sense of life. We all need them. The Old Testament believer needed them. And we talked about the two words of Advent being remembrance and anticipation. And this psalm, this is a psalm we've looked at before, and I'll be honest with you, we'll continue to look at it again because I think it's my favorite of all the psalms, is we have the second of those words, anticipation. And what I want to challenge you to do and encourage you to do is enter, try to enter into the mind, the imagination, the heart of an Old Testament believer. 
and what it would look like in the worship of the Old Testament saint in the sanctuary of God beholding their God. For the Psalms are the worship book. The Psalms are the prayer book of the Old Testament. They gave expression to the story of the gospel that they believed. They were the expression of their soul that gave thought, gave word, gave expression to their prayers, to their worship, to their life. The disciple of Jesus Christ is formed by the story of the Bible. As a matter of fact, the story of the Bible encapsulates the story of Christmas. You could say that the story of Christmas is the story of the Bible. We've called it the unfolding mystery of Christ. We looked at the beginning of that mystery. We've seen the content of that mystery. And today, this morning, we're focusing on the hope of that mystery. And the story of the Bible is essentially a story of empire, of God establishing his kingdom on earth, of building his empire. In the New Testament times, the Greek word for gospel, the word euangelion, which means good news, was used in the secular culture, much like we would use sports language or Facebook or Twitter or any of these things. The word euangelion to a typical Roman meant the good news that Caesar is Lord. That's what the word gospel meant for a first century Roman. Now look at how in the times of the New Testament, the gospel now applied to Jesus Christ is the good news that Jesus is Lord. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The beginning of the mystery was what? As the story begins, God creates the world to establish his kingdom, to build an empire, to have God and man living on the earth, to have the earth ruled by his royal representatives, his image bearers, being the place of his special presence on the earth. Then, of course, the next phase of the story is when everything went wrong with the fall of the first humans. Mankind and their representative, Adam, committed not simply moral failure. We've got to get an idea of sin and the fall as not simply Adam went, oops, I made a mistake. I was told to have a pear and I ate an apple. That is not the essence of original sin. The essence of original sin is insurrection, mutiny, uprising. Instead of Adam listening to the word and the voice and the goodness and the revelation of God, he listened to the word of the serpent. That's mutiny, that's tyranny, that's revolution. That's original sin at its root, at its heart. Which left the drama of the mystery, the drama of the story, what is God going to do now? When you read the Old Testament, you have to have that question in the back of your mind. What will God do with humanity? What will God do about building his empire, his kingdom, his realm on earth as is in heaven? Will he give up his plan altogether? Will he abandon it? He certainly would have been righteous and just to do so. There was nothing where God was obligated to redeem humanity. But we learn in the content of the mystery... That it begins, remember I gave you that reading strategy, it begins as an acorn, it unfolds until it becomes that mighty oak tree, that you had enmity, hostility put between the serpent and the woman, and the seed of the serpent, and the seed or the descendant, the offspring of the woman. And that representative, who would eventually be Jesus, would complete the work. 
He would come, and here's the message of Advent and Christmas, what we look back towards and what we are certainly looking forward to. He would come to restore and set everything right. He would come to fulfill and accomplish what God originally purposed and designed. Advent and Christmas celebrate God's coming to restore what the Hebrews called shalom. Come to restore health, beauty, order, the kingdom of God to everything. Psalm 96, the essential message is the Lord reigns. He is coming. There is good news. What does that mean for our life? I said enter into the life anticipate, have this hope. What does that mean for our life? How do you respond to the reign of the Lord? How do you respond to him as king? In other words, what is the hope of this mystery? Essentially, it's three things. It's the hope of the king's glory. It's the hope of the king's rule. And it's the hope of the king's judgment. First, the hope of the king's glory. Psalm 96, verse 1 begins, O sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all peoples. The singing of a song to the Lord is an old tradition among God's people. Do we understand how vital, how important is singing is to our soul? After the Exodus, what, what would salvation look like for an Old Testament Christian? Essentially, it would look like the Exodus, being freed from bondage to the Egyptians, coming out and then walking with God, following his glory, revealed literally in a cloud and fire in the wilderness as you live by faith in the promises of God. After Moses, as the judge and prince of his people, led his people out Do you know what the very first thing they did? They sang. And here's what they sang. Exodus 15 says, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. Do you know what he's doing? He is telling of God's salvation as he knew it day by day. He says, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Isn't that incredible? To Moses and the Israelites, the Lord himself, not simply his benefits, not what you get from him, but the Lord himself is their song. Singing and music is the absolute language of our soul. Look through our iPhones, iPods, iThis, Samsung this, Galaxy this, whatever device you use to listen to music, and what do you find? You find rock music, classical music, jazz music, country music. Am I missing a genre out there? Am I missing anything else? Am I missing one, Vic? Oh, rap. I don't know if I'd have that in mind or not. So, actually, I do have a couple songs. So, (laughs) you can ask me about that later. So, but the bottom line is music is so vitally important. It is the absolute language. It's the expression of our soul. And here in the psalm, we are forever to be singing a new song. In the context of this song, see, Psalm 96 was used along with parts of Psalms 105 and 106 and 1 Chronicles 16. It was used to celebrate the bringing of the ark of God to the city of God, the sanctuary of God to Jerusalem. Why it was done is the ark of the covenant, the ark of God, was the special presence of God. If God is omnipresent, he's everywhere, 
the special presence of God, the intimate presence of God, much like God walking in the garden with Adam and Eve, was dramatized and was put in a pictorial form in the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark was meant to be in the city of God. And for a long time, it wasn't in the city of God. But when it was returned, finally, to the city of God, do you know what the people of God did? They sang. They sang a new song to the Lord. Why? Because he's with us. God and sinners reconciled. That occasion would mark a new thing, a new wonder the Lord had done. So what would they do? They would declare his glory among the nations. They would be a light to the nations. That they would be singing and shouting from the rooftop, the Lord reigns, he is present amongst his chosen people, his treasured possession. They would be a light to those nations, declaring and proclaiming his marvelous deeds, his wondrous works before all peoples. Recognize in this psalm we're commanded to sing three times. The key words you hear, sing, you hear tell, you hear declare, you hear say. Makes me wonder if there's room for shy worship. We're commanded all the time. And in fact, Mark Futado, professor of Old Testament down at RTS in Orlando, he describes this. He says, remember that the Psalms are Hebrew poetry, and in classic Hebrew poetry, it's marked by what is called parallelism. And he defines Hebrew parallelism as the art of saying something similar twice, with the difference being that the second line amplifies the first. So if you look at the psalm, what does it say? Here's the first line. I'm going to teach you Hebrew poetry. Sing to the Lord a new song. There's line one. Line two will take it and it will amplify. Sing to the Lord who? All the earth. That amplifies the first line. Then verse 2, sing to the Lord, bless his name. And then line 2, tell of his salvation day from day to day. Verse 3, declare his glory among the nations. Amplified his marvelous deeds, his wondrous works, the things he has actually performed by his powerful right arm among all peoples. Practical application in terms of this. I want you to see how worship and evangelism go hand in hand how this is actually missional worship. There's a lesson here because in verse 1, we're commanded to sing to the Lord a new song. And then what are we to do? We bless his name by how? Proclaiming his salvation day after day. See, first, worship is upward towards God. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Then it extends outward. Where are you proclaiming his marvelous deeds? Among all peoples. The worship of God goes upward and it goes outward. Which leads to the second practical thing in terms of this. And that is that to sing the song of the gospel, to worship the Lord, to sing to the Lord a new song, it must be expressed. John Piper says, we will automatically, we will spontaneously, we will always praise what we love. No one put it as well as C.S. Lewis this is a little bit of a lengthy quote, but pay attention. Listen as I read this quote from C.S. Lewis. He says, When I first began to draw near to belief in God, and even for some time after, I found a stumbling block in the demand that we should praise God. Still more in the suggestion that God himself demanded it. We all despise the man who demands continued assurance of his own virtue. But the most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously 
overflows into praise. Lewis gives the following example. He says, the world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses. Readers praising their favorite poet. Walkers praising the countryside. Players praising their favorite game. He says, except where intolerably adverse circumstances interfere, praise almost seems to be inner health made audible. Men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. They say, wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? Indeed, we can't help doing it because praise is not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. We do that all the time. You go see a movie you enjoy. What's the very first thing? Spontaneously do. You tell your best friend about it. New restaurant opens up in town. You spontaneously express your enjoyment of that restaurant. Lewis's insight here is remarkable. He says your praise is incomplete. It's not finished. It's not consummated until it's been expressed. Declare the glory of the Lord among the nations. Say, express it, verbalize it, his, his salvation from day to day. Do you know what this practically means? The implication of this is that if you're not sharing, if you're not proclaiming the wonders of God, that means the praise is not complete. So do you want to know what the test is? Here's the simple truth. Listen to your own conversations. What is it you talk about most frequently? And I'm not saying we shouldn't talk about the ordinary things. I guarantee you, if the Giants beat the Cowboys tonight, I'm going to complete that praise. There is no doubt about that. That's the ordinary stuff of life. But if I am doing that to the exclusion, then I'm never spontaneously telling of the impact of salvation in my life. What it means that I was in exile and I've been brought home. What it means that I was lost and I've been found. What it means that I was blind and now I see. What it means that I was guilty and now I'm in the righteousness of God. If I'm not telling of his salvation, I'm not praising him. For the telling, the expression completes the praise. Do you sing the song of the gospel? Do you have the hope of the king's glory? Next, look at the hope of king's rule. There's a very simple psalm to understand in its structure because the way it's divided, the first six verses talk about singing. Verses seven to nine talk about ascribing. And ascribing what? The glory to his name, the rule of the king. What does it, it says, ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. What does it mean to have the hope of the king's rule? Tim Keller has some wonderful insights on what it means to glorify God, and he breaks it down into these following things. He talks about, first of all, to ascribe rule, glory, magnificence to the Lord means to recognize mentally with our minds the supreme excellence and value and, ex and standard in him. It's to acknowledge that he is the measure of all things, that all truth is God's truth. He's the standard and measure of all things. But he says more than that because we're mind, we're volition, we're heart, 
we're emotions, we're affections. So to glorify God then means volitionally, meaning with our will, it means we assign, we ascribe ultimate value to him. In a simple word, it means he's the most important thing in our life. Nothing is more important than him. We recognize his value and worthiness. And then lastly, it means emotionally or in our affections, our likes and our loves, to find our ultimate joy or pleasure in him. It is to find him your deepest satisfaction. The way Dr. Keller puts it, he says, to glorify God is not to go to God mainly to get his help, or to get his guidance, or to get his forgiveness, or to get his power, or to get his strength. It is to get him. It is to move beyond a general belief in God to knowing and beholding his beauty and his glory. The early church father Irenaeus put it this way, and he put it wonderfully when he said, the glory of God is the human being being fully alive. And the life of the human consists in beholding God. So to put it another way, a human being fully alive is beholding God, which is the glory of God. Now, practically speaking, how do we do that? How does that become more and more a part of our lives? How does the Holy Spirit lead us and move move us to behold the beauty and glory of God? In a nutshell, he points us to Christ, which leads us to our final point. To hope in the King is to hope in the king's judgment. Look now with me at verse 10. And we finally, in verses 10 to 13, move to the crescendo of this entire psalm. And a crescendo, I actually looked this up, is by definition a steady increase in force or intensity. And this entire psalm is moving this way. That's why this is poetry. The genre of this is poetry. And you hear the passion increasing from sing to ascribe to finally get on the rooftop and say among the nations, the Lord reigns. This movement in passion, intensity, and force says the world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. And then he says, let the heavens rejoice, let the earth be glad, let the sea resound and all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy. They will sing before the Lord, for he comes. He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. The entire creation is being summoned to an extravaganza. Why? Because of the judgment of the Lord. Notice how many times the word judge or judgment is used there. Now what is our attitude? Do we hope in the king's judgment? Is that something we look forward to? Is that something we enter into and worship and ache for and long for and can't wait for? It ought to be. But perhaps we misunderstand judgment. See, I want you to think about why this excitement. Heavens rejoicing, fields, trees, the creation itself clapping his hands, and yet we worship. Hark the herald angels sing. Instead of belting it out, joining 
with the trees of the field and the heavens rejoicing and the animals coming to dance. Maybe we don't understand fully what the judgment of God is all about. See, the Hebrew word for judge is the word shafat. And the word shafat means to put everything in right order. As one commentator put it, shafat designates an action that restores the disturbed order of a community. It is the restoring of everything to health and to shalom. See, I think so often we think of judgment and we think of it in only one way. It's a true way, but we reduce it to this one way. We reduce judgment to punishment, and we go, judgment is about God getting everybody. And we reduce it to punishment, we put it in the law court, we put it, and here's my key word here, only in the law court, and as a result, we miss the positive end of judgment, which is God positively putting everything, restoring everything to right order, making everything according to his blueprint, according to his design. See, while in judgment we usually have the idea of a judge in a law court, and that is part of the idea, we have to recognize it is not the whole of the idea. We have to recognize that because of original sin, because of that original mutiny, things in life are not as God originally intended them to be. But as Mark Furtado says, here's Advent. The king is coming to put all things in right order for the whole created realm. The question becomes, how can God put everything right, including us, without destroying us? How can God put us in right order, perfect health, physical, emotional, spiritual, psychological, without annihilating us, without destroying us? And the answer is Jesus and understanding what Jesus did. The Apostle Paul put it this way. He says, for our sake, out of love for us, God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Essentially, that means, for our sake, out of pure, unadulterated, unconditional love and mercy, this is the meaning of grace. God made Jesus the perfect one, the perfect image bearer, the one who's the second Adam, fulfilled everything Adam was meant to do. He... Theologians call it recapitulation. He recapitulated the life of Adam. He lived the human life as it was meant to be. He did that for us. And God, even though Jesus knew no sin, treated Jesus, dealt with Jesus as if he were a sinner. Giving him the punishment, the chastisement, as, as Isaiah puts it. That was ours, it fell upon Jesus, so that in Jesus, we might become the very righteousness of God. Which means we have no fear of judgment. As John put it in his first letter, he says in 1 John 4, we have come to know and rely upon the love God has for us. He says, by this is love so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, also are we in the world. He goes on to say, there is no fear in love, 
But perfect love, what is perfect love? God making him sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now connect these things. Let scripture interpret scripture. Perfect love casts out fear. Why? Because fear has to do with punishment. And John goes, the one who fears has not been made whole, has not been perfected, has not been made mature in love. So let me ask you a question. Do you hope in the king's judgment? When how does God put everything right? He will judge the people's inequity with faithfulness without destroying you? Be in Christ. Be in Christ. And then the only thing you have to look forward to is God putting everything right, restoring health to everything so that the last word is not held by cancer. The last word is not held by disease. The last word is not held by slavery. The last word is not held by sex trafficking. The last word is not held by class warfare. The last word is not held by poverty. The the last word is not held by racism. The last word is held by Jesus. Do you hope in the king's judgment? Father, may that be our hope, and may we enter into anticipation May we enter into a sense of engaging with our entire being, body, soul, mind, will, emotions, affections, into all that it means that the Lord reigns. May we have hope that the last word is Jesus, and we pray in his name. Amen.